Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Borag Thung. My name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here at Dirt Towers in Adlington, Chorley in the northwest of England. I'm surrounded by my stuff, loads of it this time as I've pulled out loads of comics too. On my right is the Great Library of RPGs and my Grognard Files. If you look at it quickly, my shelf looks like a scene from the film Labyrinth. It's a replica of Sarah's room. When the camera pans the shelves, you can see Games Workshop's Judge Dread board game. I'm Jared the Goblin King, and I love Judge Dredd. Yes, the subject of this grognard file is Judge Dredd, but the role-playing game, and 2000 AD, the comic. But first, it's great to get feedback and reviews on iTunes and comments on the blog at thegrognardfiles.com. Comments like this one from Jules Lawrence. I've recently discovered your podcast via the good friends of Jackson Elias, and as a fellow vintage gamer, I must say that I'm thoroughly enjoying having Dirk and Blythe as travel companions. It's a nice blend of quirky but knowledgeable chat from two characters who I feel like are kind of folks that I'd like to spend the evening bantering over a few beers. Thanks, Jules, and thanks for the offer of beer. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll uh, just give it a tap. Ah, she returns as Carla from Captain Kronos, The Vampire Hunter, a British film from the 70s that inspired a comic book adaptation in 2017. Zajaz. This episode is all about 2000 AD, the galaxy's greatest comic, edited by the mighty Tharg and its influence on our gaming back in the day. We'll also be looking back at the Games Workshop Judge Dredd role-playing game, released in 1985 to great acclaim. It remains a classic thanks to it being the early stages of game designer Rick Priestley's skirmish mechanics that would form the core of Warhammer Fantasy role-playing, which would follow in 1986. However, the most memorable aspect of the game is its atmosphere and supporting background material that was developed by this episode's special guest, Mark Gascoigne. Regular listeners will know that back in episode 14, we talked to Ian Marsh about fanzines and dragon lords. Mark was one of the editors. He went on to work at Games Workshop during its most productive RPG period in the mid-80s working on licenses for RuneQuest, Paranoia and Call of Cthulhu, as well as developing a great board game line too, featuring Dungeon Quest, Talisman and The Fury of Dracula. We'll talk to him in the second part of this episode about his role in developing the fighting fantasy line and how he became an editor and publisher of a renown in the world of science fiction and fantasy. In this part, he talks about his time at Games Workshop and the creation of Judge Dread RPG, after a brief potted history from me. 
It's been a revelation to go back to the white dwarf issues of the period and revisit some of the well-written pieces that appeared in the magazine to promote it. At Daily Dwarf from Twitter is a huge 2000 AD fan and he's had great fun writing a couple of pieces for us. Joining me later will be the only lawman who refuses to wear a helmet, Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer. He joins me in the attic to look at some of our favourite stories from 2000 AD back in the day. On the 10th of February 2017, I'll be running a game of Judge Dread RPG at Spaghetti Conjunction in Birmingham and I'll be doing it again at the UK Games Expo in June. Better Living Through Chemistry that appears in the latest Grogzine. It's a gift for patrons and the PDF is available now. I'll tell you more about it at the end. OK, let's hit the streets. Be careful out there. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Potted history. There were three publications that were important to the armchair adventurers back in the day. White Dwarf, obviously. Starburst, the magazine of cinema and television fantasy that was published in the UK by Marvel. And we got a weekly blast of thrill power from the 2000 AD comic. It's interesting to note that all three titles are still in production. White Dwarf continues to promote Warhammer miniatures. Starburst was revived by a geek chic entrepreneur and former lawyer, Jordan Royce, who owns the wonderfully eccentric Fab Cafe in Manchester. And 2000 AD has grown with its audience and over the years has adapted to the changing tastes and despite some ups and downs along the way, remains strong and influential comic to this day. It's more remarkable when you think of the context of its creation. It was born out of the fiercely competitive UK weekly comics market of the 1970s, where two major players, DC Thompson in Dundee, Scotland, and IPC, International Publishing Corporation in London, dominated the lucrative marketplace. It was a dog-eat-dog world where comics could be dropped by the publishers if the circulation dropped a little below 300,000 a week. 300,000 a week. Numbers like that are unimaginable today. In the early 70s, there was a changing of the old guard. The old order was being challenged by younger writers who were taking their inspiration from contemporary television and New Hollywood, rather than the rip-roaring pulps of the past. Pat Mills and John Wagner brought their edgy sensibilities to bear on Battle, the war comic, which was a hit, but created controversy through its depiction of teenage rebellion and gory violence. When they were developing a new science fiction comic, it seemed obvious that it should have a cops and robbers strip. John Wagner had written One-Eyed Jack for Valiant, a story about a tough New York cop based on the Dirty Harry character made famous by Clint Eastwood. When it came to 2000 AD, he suggested pushing the idea into the near future and to challenge the objections of the morality of violence by creating a policeman who was dutifully following the letter of the law. He took the name from an idea by Pat Mills and a treatment for an occult story in the style of Dennis Wheatley about a hanging judge investigating Satanists. Judge Dredd, D-R-E-A-D, was shelved, but his name was adopted with a change in spelling to avoid confusion 
and litigation from the White Scar Registar, who was popular at the time. Carlos Esquera was given the poster of Death Race 2000 and asked to elaborate on the design of Dread, which he did with verve and imagination to create the distinctive look that has remained to this day. He also developed the skyscrapers and elevated freeways that would later recast New York as Mega City One, the home of Judge Dredd, the 21st century's most famous lawman, tough but fair. He quickly became a favourite of the readers thanks to the endless inventiveness of the writers who developed a great cast of perps living cheek by jowl in a city of 800 million, such as the fatties, the uglies, the footsies, the beoingers and the sovs in the East Meg. It was an environment ripe for gaming. Games Workshop produced their board game in 1982, which really captured the humour and spirit of the comic. Their role-playing game was released in 1985. Their role-playing game was released in 1985 and was supported by a companion and two cracking campaign modules, Judgment Day and Slaughter Margin. The miniatures produced by Citadel were also really well executed. There's some great perps in the collection, as well as Judge Dredd on and off his Lawmaster bike. At times, it was promoted as a skirmish game, a companion to Warhammer 40,000. There was a collection of floor plans in a box set titled City Block that contained scenarios for both games. Judge Dredd appeared in their catalogues until 1992. Rebellion bought out the comic and revived its fortunes in the noughties, and British games publisher Mongoose brought out a D20 Judge Dredd role-playing game in 2002, as well as a game based on Slain. In 2009, they brought out a version based on their Traveller rules, which was well supported until 2016. Last year, 2017, it was announced that EN Publishing had gained the rights to produce games using the characters and settings from the comic. Judge Dredd and the Worlds of 2000 AD is in development, using the using the WoWin system, which stands for What is Old is New. Also, there's a long-form TV series set in Mega City 1 due out in the next couple of years, proving that 40 years on, there's still life in Old Stonyface and stories from the Meg are still infinite. Pay attention, citizen. Open Box. Welcome to Open Box, part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, this time with our special guest, Mark Gascoigne, designer of the Judge Dread role-playing game and publisher extraordinaire. He started life as the editor of Dragonlord's fanzine alongside Ian Marsh, who was our guest in episode 14. I'm trying to complete the set. So how did you get together? You know, I, I first met Ian Marsh when I was 11 right. at, uh, at uh, grammar school in Ramsgate down in Kent. A lo- lovely school, kind of a second division, uh, streamed grammar. We still had the 11 plus back then. And I think on Thanet, uh, the Isle of Thanet down at the end. I think they do still stream them, actually, bizarrely. Uh, but the school was notable for a bunch of things. Uh, Edward Heath, the ex-Prime Minister, and somewhat uh, solid name these days, went there. Frank Muir, the uh, elderly now, very much deceased humorist. And then uh, Nick Turner out of Hawkwind, which for us was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of the, the kings of space rock went to our school. And then all of a sudden, all these gamers 
um, so, um, basically assembled by the Sword and Sorcery Society, run by a couple of slightly elder lads who'd been playing Napoleonic war games, and then turned up with some uh, minifigs, Mythical Earth figures, which were basically knockoff Lord of the Rings figures. It was obvious that white-haired wizard on horse was obviously Gandalf, and uh, um, cowled wraith on pterodactyl was obviously a Nazgul, and so on. And we uh, we all snapped up those and uh, started to play with some homemade rules which i've still got in a little notebook somewhere and they're all like roll three dice and if you get three sixes everyone dies it's not super sophisticated stuff and uh we played those to our heart's content after school for a couple of hours every thursday evening occasional quizzes based mostly on uh, a deep reading of lord of the rings and i wanted an orc army and i bought them off a uh, a fellow member of the club which was mr marsh and thus there thus the years continued until uh, until role playing came along well, the very the very first glimmerings of it, we actually read about it. This was Ian, myself, and a couple of other friends, a guy called Jeff Steigel, who was in my year, and a slightly younger lad called Mike Lewis, uh, whose name obviously pops up with Dragonlords, as he was the third part of our triumvirate, who eventually went on to found the fanzine. And we uh, we read in, I think, either Military Modelling or Battle for Wargamers magazine about this amazing game. There's a, a double-page spread, Easter 78, uh, where I think it was a bit of a promo for GW launching the first British printing of the basic rulebook, which was kind of the second iteration of D&D after the three white books in the, in the little box. It sounded the most amazing thing we'd ever heard of. Well, you can actually be not just the armies, but the general of the army. And indeed, you don't need necessarily to, to have armies at your beck and call. And you can go off and uh, do stuff that's far more like crawling through the mines of Moria um, or Fafford and the Grey Mouse adventures than the, uh, the tabletop stuff we'd been doing. And indeed, we invented our first role play rules and characters before we got our hands on any rule books. Later that, uh, that year, across the summer holidays, Mike managed to get a copy of the first chivalry and sorcery rule book, which was a revelation, not just because it gave us the tools at last, but also because it was about 8,000 pages long and rolling up a character took the whole of a Thursday evening session at the Sword and Sorcery Society. And often because they had an experience uh, system built in where you would roll effectively for what you did each year of your life until you became the age that you could become an adventurer, there was a good chance you were going to die somewhere through the character creation process. Um, on the other hand, it also meant that in all the gaps between games, you gained a few experience points from your, your daily life. And uh, we puzzled away at that for a while, and then thankfully, uh, some of it, uh, some some of us managed to get our hands on some of the early D and D rules. Finally, I had the uh, the GW printing of the uh, the basic role play, uh, the basic D and D rule set, which blue cover with a fangorn cover of silver ink, and it was a revelation. You know, looking back at it, utterly incoherent and uh, uh, fragmentary, with only a partial bit of a dungeon at the end. And uh, nevertheless, it did everything we wanted it to do. You could roll up characters, you could easily plot out a few dungeon rooms, and you could send your mates off to a, an almost certain death. And that was extraordinary. It was an absolute revelation, not just to be able to uh, to read about these adventures, but to go and have them ourselves. And were you mainly the uh, games master, Mark? I think on D and D and D initially, we did swap it around. And I think Ian, particularly, was a very good GM. He was a lot more coherent in his storytelling. Uh, we were all learning as we went. And of course, the early adventures were three dragons in this room, then an orc, then another two storm giants and so on. No thought to their uh, their living arrangements or uh, how the ecology would work. Um, that uh, that orc surely wouldn't have lasted that long, but perhaps there was 100,000 of them before then. But very soon you come to realize that actually you can start building stories. That, and when you start 
gaming and uh, you're into stuff and i've always been one of those people who get into things you don't just buy the set you then go oh look there's a magazine devoted to it so white dwarf quickly became a mainstay and in there there's immediately new monsters new rules experience point systems the original um uh, monster mark system where you rated monsters so you could build uh uh, dungeons in a more balanced way that was that was a little too much like differential calculus for me bless him, <laughs> Don, Don, but, uh, which i know ian touched on it when when you talk to him but anything that allows you to tinker with the rules then gives you permission to tinker with all of them that was my take but then hard on the heels of that RuneQuest, and we really fell for RuneQuest. not so much because of the world i think even now pavis and glorantha and so on uh, are wonderfully mad creations i've been fortunate enough to meet greg stafford a couple of times at conventions and he's a incredibly literate and very deep person but that game is very much ripped from his imagination and his influences which are quite different to our um western european and particularly british ones i think british history with its layer upon layer upon layer mostly of filth and, <laughs> uh, and slime and lepers and so on and so forth is exactly what form informs games even up to warhammer and beyond now and the whole of the grimdark movement in in fantasy fiction whereas american fantasy can often be a, some a, some of some very different influences which is wonderful but what runequest really did was take out for me the illogicalities of having a d4 for this and 2d6 plus 3 for that saying everything's percentages then everything can be worked out for some people, that's too reductionist. They like the difference and the idea that a dagger does one to four or a short sword does one to six and so on feels very clean for them. For me, it was the other way around. It was the basic role play system with the percentages suddenly felt like freedom to me, which isn't to say we didn't then go off and monkey with that again. And, and we, was it the swords and sorcery and uh, fantasy that appealed to you? Were you at the same time playing things like Traveller or science fiction role playing? We were because, as I say, we kind of bought everything. There was a little game shop in uh, in Ramsgate where, as I say, we were going to school. We would nip down every few lunchtimes. And I must admit, I can't remember the name of the guy who ran it, but he was very kind to us. And anything we wanted ordering in, he would get in. And, of course, we'd buy it. And he'd then get uh, sent other stuff that we weren't that keen on, and we'd still buy it because, oh, my God, it's a role-play game or it's a supplement, uh, along with little racks of the early Ralph Arthur and Citadel miniatures. For me, Traveller wasn't as, as visceral as the as the sword and sorcery and i think i've i've always been more of a of a fantasy reader for me it was Warcock with elric and Hawkmoon and corum and uh fritz leiber's raffert and gray mouse and then the, the uh, reading back into the conan short stories of howard and then the people who co-wrote those and then carried on the tradition sprague de camp and even lynn carter um some of it um fairly low-end pulpy stuff but all of it when you read it for the first time when you're 12 or 14 or whatever it's it's mind-blowing stuff um uh, the fantasy always gripped me more i think also with traveler when you've got the entire universe you could be adventuring in it's kind of hard where to go first you're, you're not entirely sure what you're doing and we had a lot of adventures where you turn up at the spaceport and then wander about while the gm looked extraordinarily frantic and started leafing through random encounter tables um we certainly weren't the sort of uh, gaming group that where the uh, the GM would go off and st you know, studiedly make six months worth of uh, amazing adventure in the hope that we'd uh, that we'd then play it. It was far more on the hoof for the most part. But where I think we're we're also spoilt for choice by some of the other offerings in the science fiction side. We used to play a bit of Laser Burn and before that Space Marine GDW's rules, where it was skirmish gaming which obviously you know, in the tradition of what became your Warhammer and 40K. And that became far more our preference on the sci-fi side. 
But then, of course, we're also spoiled for choice because some of the early fantasy games came out, whether it was your Mystic Caves, yeah, the random geomorph game where you, you go down and discover wandering monsters and hopefully turn up treasures, but also more sophisticated offerings like uh, Divine Right, an early TSR, TSR board game that had a lot of elements, almost like a fighting fantasy game, where you get to different squares and roll on D12 tables for what turned up. And that had a real narrative style to it that we found was, was particularly uh, funny, frankly. But also more sophisticated games, the Sorcerer by SPI, we played a lot. And that's a very clever game where you're a magician allied to a particular color of the rainbow. And according to what colors are next to you, you're either stronger or weaker. And we kept playing that with our Mike all summer until we realized he lost every game. And someone blurted out, oh, my God, it's not like you're colorblind or something, is it, mate? Whereupon he revealed he actually was. And had been working with all these different gray squares, trying to work out which one was stronger than the others, bless him. Uh-huh. And, and how uh, I, we've heard from uh, Ian now uh, Dragon Wars started, but from your point of view, how did how did that uh, start? How did you move into uh, fanzine production? Well, for being extraordinarily arrogant grammar school boys, ultimately thinking we knew better, thinking we had all sorts of ideas, and uh, seeing what other people were doing and going, well, we could do that. Um, I uh, I did a uh, Kim Newman did a, a documentary on 30 years of D&D for Radio 4 a few years ago, and I somewhat cheekily said that just about everyone who bought the original D&D basic set went out and formed, not like a band after you've seen the Sex Pistols or whatever, but you, you went and tinkered with the rules or you became a novelist or a computer game designer. And we were that. We were just that generation that the game was ours and we were going to do our own rules with it. And once we started coming up with ideas, we couldn't stop ourselves. And we were, frankly, we were a bit young and punky. Uh, bear in mind this is you know, 79 into 80 and uh, we thought we knew better and the first few issues of Dragon Lords set out our stall we were going to be sarcastic and rude and cheeky and satirical as much as uh, we were going to provide very detailed meaningful adventures and new character classes and that sort of stuff but after that we very quickly discovered the games conventions Dragon Meet and then the big game stays at the Horticultural Hall run by workshop but very much covering an entire panoply of games from chess and go and risk and diplomacy through to the latest imports from the us on the role playing and the wargaming side and then of course the glories of the fanzine stand the first year we went uh, was uh, was when we had dragon lords five or six out and we managed to get ourselves voted number third best fanzine and they thought well this is for us and uh, we were best fanzine the next three years in a row um, by that, by the end, we were organising the fanzine table with a whole bunch of our fellow editors, making sure that there was like a, a little indie cartel of people who'd support each other. And uh, we'd swap copies of our magazine, but we'd also help sell each other. We were distributing other fanzines and they were selling copies for us, getting together to, uh, to organise tournaments and games and all sorts of things. And, and how did you make the transition from being um, uh, an enthusiastic fan to being a professional uh, working for games yeah. Well, it's at this point, I have to say, I've never, ever done a job interview uh, in my entire professional life. I've always drifted from one thing to another. But partly, of course, it's about putting the work in. And then when the time's right, people remember who you are. In the case of my first job with Games Workshop, which was um, I actually went for a job in the warehouse, but I got uh, I got offered a job as a games editor while I was sat in reception. Really? Um, we'd uh, we'd been up to interview Ian Livingston for Dragon Lords about six months earlier, and we had a lovely day, marred only by the fact that my mate, who's meant to bring the recording ghetto blaster, and the cassette tape to put the interview on, uh, didn't bring it. So we did the interview. We pretended to make notes, and then we went home and made it all up. 
Yeah, right. it happens, it happens to the best of us, that. Yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which Mr. Livingston was was most bemused by. <laughs> um, we were also, we were, I'd say at game stage particularly, we were winding him and Steve Jackson up quite terribly uh, with various silly stunts of one form or another, but also doing cute stuff in our, uh, for our second ga- uh, game state, we did the game day game where you went round with a game center promotional bag, which is what they used to give out to you on the on the way in, collecting various items. And it was very much like a, a simple go round the track, collect things game. But we managed to s- stump up a little bit more money and did it in a color board and so on. And for 50p with a free board game, we, we flogged a lot of those. But Ian remembered all of these. And uh, Ian had joined Workshop to work in the warehouse and had been lured up to be the assistant editor on White Dwarf under Jamie Thompson. And thus there was a role going in the warehouse. I'd actually gone to work for the aforementioned Game Center toy store uh, across the tail end of 83. They went bankrupt and closed down just on uh, New Year's Eve 83. And uh, when Ian got poached up, he's like, come on, mate, there's a job going in the warehouse replacing me. So I went over. But as I say, I was sitting in reception, just filling in the application form. And Ian wandered past, did a comedy double take, said, who let you in? Security, security, ha, ha, ha. Always a funny guy, bless him. Curly Permanor. And uh, he uh, he said, well, once you've done talking to Stuart uh, for, about the warehouse job, come and see me because I think I may have an editorial position that's just come up. And he really was as simple as that. Joe Diva uh, had been... Um, uh, decided to go off and write his Lone Wolf books full time. And I have to say at this point, you know, after the success of Warlock at Firetop Mountain for Stephen Ian, they were incredibly generous. They were, they were approached by all the children's publishers to do Firetop Mountain copies. And, uh, you know, so they could jump on the bandwagon. Or did you know anyone who also writes these things? And of course they did, because they had a, a whole design team full of them. So in no short order, Joe Diva and uh, Jamie Thompson and uh, his ally, John, uh, Dave Morris, and then John Sutherland and Min Smith and various other folks ended up writing the first wave of uh, British paperback game books. And uh, so Joe had gone off to do all of this. And uh, there was a bunch of projects hoving to, including some board games, working with Albie Fury, the wonderful Albie Fury, and this, uh, this new Judge Dread game that they were planning. They'd done the board game to some success, and it's still a great, cute little game, a great uh, icebreaker game. Uh, particularly for for younger players, and um, famous of course, we, uh, where Judge Death can be uh, arrested for littering. That's the, well, that's part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah. Then, while it's not accurate, anyone who plays it and goes, ha ha ha! I've just yeah, I've just uh, caught uh, death for littering or whatever. Yeah. That becomes something you talk about and you remember that. Yeah. And that uh, while it's not entirely accurate, you know, actually it's a comic book, so uh, occasionally these mad twists uh, should be part of of that sort of game. Exactly. I've, plenty of more serious games so ian actually passed over 25 30 pages of fairly closely typed game rules for a skirmish game based on the the dread ip and said oh i'll give you 20 minutes and then if you can just do me a a little report on what you do to this to turn it into a full rpg and uh that's what i did i sat in his office while he went and had a cup of tea and wandered around uh, pretending to be interested in what folks were doing and uh came back and I said, well, it's missing this, it's missing that. I think the uh, some of the character development system doesn't add enough speciality for side judges and they just done the Exorcist division and I'd, I'd read that one in the last few weeks. So I mentioned those guys. Yeah, perhaps that's more for their, a companion later, but there's a whole raft of things to do on the IP side, the world. But then also in terms of the rules, I think we can do with something for car chases, we can do with something for investigation and the forensics division and then psychers and so on. And pretty much before my eyes, it grew from 
uh, skirmish game, uh, pretty much based on the, what the foundations of Warhammer became, because that was what Rick was also working on, of course, up at, up at Workshop in or Citadel up in uh, in uh, Nottingham at the time, and into a full RPG. Of course, I then went kind of mad, and uh, we went down to IPC. We borrowed a copy of every single uh, co- issue of, White, uh, of 2008 ever published, got some advanced scripts, and proceeded to turn one of the books into this vast world book where until the very night before we went to print in 85, I was lobbying in things from that week's prog uh, into wow. the very uh, changing things here and there. But it wasn't all it wasn't all just diving into it and, and uh, uh, just producing it as a game. It had to work. And that was tough because I wasn't while I was a tink, uh, you know, a tinkler on their you know, variant RuneQuest and variant D&D. I was I was never the sort of person who would create an entire a gaming system. I think Ian tells a story about me not really make it, being able to make the initiative system work. So uh, Ian managed to work out some stuff that we then play tested over the desk in the office. Uh, the office, incidentally, was myself, Ian, and Jamie Thompson at the time. I say the uh, the legend, really uh, lag- laggardly uh, dwarf editor, bless him. And uh, the fact that Ian and I had known each other since uh, the very start of secondary school, he didn't stand a chance. Jamie, bless him. <laughs> Uh, so many ridiculous pranks. I mean, Ian's propensity for building stronger and stronger catapults and seed engines out of office supplies pretty much came to a head when he managed to shoot a, uh, a foot-long steel ruler through the air conditioning unit using a series of elastic bands. We had to stop that. Uh, so just talk about this. So it, it, We've got an idea of uh, how it started. So how did the development of the game and how was it received? Um, was it a hit on its first release? The- it, it very much was, and uh, it took a long time to create. I wasn't helped by the fact that um, the guys had thought, well, Mark's coming in, uh, he's going to write, you know, co-write this, he's going to take Rick's game system and develop an RPG around it, and then they're going to play test it and uh, develop it, and then they're going to lay it, they typeset it, lay it out, and they'll start planning for supplements and so on. But they hadn't thought about how that was going to happen. There were two typesetters within the workshop studio, but this is the days pre-DTP. So there's no Apple Macs or anything around, uh, not even old Amstrads. This is with Linotronic machines where a white dwarf article, for example, would be typed up, double spaced, marked up and then laid out in strips that would then be assembled using hot wax on paper. And then the illustrations would be photographed and stuck on. And then those sheets would go off to the printers. And if there's color printing, that had to be done on a tracing paper overlay. So it was labor intensive. There were two folks doing this already all day long. So there was no typesetting time. But they cleverly found that uh, the Linotronic machine had a device you could enter text into, like a little remote uh, server. So I would, uh, I'd sit there and type it in, which was all very well. But it was only a data entry. It wasn't a. It wasn't like a word processor. I was just typing the words in. So eventually, I had to. I realised I had to go and ask Steve Jackson for a uh, an electric typewriter and go back to first principles. But that was three months in. So basically, the first three months was me reading an awful lot of copies of 2000 AD, hard I know, making all sorts of notes in pencil and paper, and writing it all out longhand, and then typing it in, realising that you know I was creating this text. But if there's only spelling mistakes in, it'll have to be done again. Um, Stephen Ian, obviously unhappy because it spent quite a lot of money on this expensive bit of useless kit. Um, but eventually we got to the point where we had a typed up manuscripts. But I would then uh, stay behind after work three or four nights a week and uh, learn to typeset. And uh, the wonderful, blessed Albie Fury. 
uh, would take me through the principles of uh, of doing very early typesetting where you you pick the uh, you'd plot the dimensions of where your first line's going to start and the extent of it on an XY grid. You'd pick the point sizes and the, and the fonts through using a whole succession of numeric codes. You'd tell them to turn it on, turn it off and so on. Quite a bit more complicated than these days. About nine months in, I was starting to get these galleys. So they finally hired a uh, another uh, graphic design type, Mark Bentham, to, to come in and start laying it out. Uh, which was both fortunate and unfortunate. Unfortunate because there wasn't actually enough of a game for him to lay out as yet. So he'd lay bits out and then we'd have to do it again because I wrote another bit or say, oh God, initiative rules. As I said, we have to lob those in. Um, so actually he ended up uh, subbing on White Dwarf and working on the early bits of Golden Heroes and mail order flyers and advertising and game stay programs and so on. So a lot of it was purely technical. And this this whole part of it served me in great stead later on and these days i am still a bit of a graphic designer type along with various other roles at angry robot my science fiction line um but ultimately i was learning on the hoof at the uh, in concert with some of the uh, you know, really great guys but it was it was another pioneer experience so a bit like doing the fanzine yeah oh yeah we don't know how to uh, how to make a little magazine we'll just learn on the job and this was much the same thing but it did mean we were missing deadline after deadline <coughs> and uh I think the initial thought was, oh, we'll just bang it out. It can be out in six months. But in, in the end, it was uh, about 14 months. No, but it was only a couple of staffers, so it wasn't super uh, costly. And when it came out, they blew through the first print run at that Games Day. Wow. And, uh, it, uh, with the two, two books and the, uh, the double-sided sheet with the, uh, the, uh, the Shuggy Hall and uh, the little card standees, um, it, uh, it was actually, at that point, suddenly... A really impressive thing and i'm told at the time it was the best-selling british rpg but you have to remember there weren't many other rpgs uh, solely produced in the uk at that time you know the uh, the rules for thane tostic or the early laser burn rules were, were barely uh, comparable to it bless them and how closely did ipc um, monitor the um ip at that point were they did they have you approval on they, it they couldn't give us stuff really? it was it was it was hilarious i they were in all sorts of uh, all sorts of things were occupying them. Let's put it like this. We went in and had a couple of good chats with Steve McManus, who was the then Tharg, and he was very supportive and told us some upcoming plot lines, as I said, and then uh, we did manage to borrow all sorts of original artwork, which we were then scanning in and photographing to drop into the game. Um, and that was all groovy. But in terms of approvals, I'm not convinced it even went over for them to, to have a look at. We were kind of trusted with the license. We'd done a good job with the board game, and uh, there was all sorts of political shenanigans at IPC. They were moving from one headquarters to another. There was talk of management buyouts and all sorts of eruptions going on at that time. So we were pretty much left to our own devices. I'm fairly certain they saw the cover of the RPG, which I think is Terry Oaks, isn't it? Yes. And uh, uh, we were working with some of the uh, established artists. So Brett Ewins did uh, covers of some of the supplements. And uh, we did have about half a dozen original pictures done where we wanted to illustrate something very specific, like a bit of kit or a specific situation. And there just wasn't a panel that we found. So uh, there were a few drawn for us uh, for the game. And then in, into the supplements, there was a lot more. But ultimately, they let us get on with it. So that was my day was you know, sitting in the White Dwarf office, assisting with the guys on Dwarf, or at least uh, making Ian and Jamie laugh and, uh, and pottering away on this. 
assisting with the uh, the first stages of Golden Heroes, um, starting to make plans to bring Cthulhu over for a British edition, and then running the uh, Crawling Chaos page in White Dwarf. Cthulhu was uh, more than anything, I think, my game. I think it, it took the, the basic role-playing stuff and then just said, actually, you don't really need these rules. These are really just the framework for some great murder mystery style dinner party with that obviously added slimy tentacle uh, uh, enwrapped, uh, enwrapped twist at the end. And uh, between all of those, a game happened and then supplements were planned and, uh, and started to come out. What, what I think uh, from, from the original rule book uh, that a lot of uh, modern uh, RPGs could learn from is that the quality, the adventure, the sample adventure is really good because um, it really puts you into the world of dread. Um, so it seems to me that a lot of care was taken over making that a, you know something that people could run with. There's an awful lot of agonising went on with dread from day one, which is can you play dread? No. Okay. Can you play rookie judges? Yeah. But is it all going to be rookies? Well, no, because rookies have their own uh, constraints. And while it's a pretty good starting adventure and uh, uh, some of the, the adventure design was along those lines, you really actually had to give these guys an awful lot of powerful weaponry and backup. And of course, the first thing the GM has to do is get them off the bikes, get them away from uh, any communication systems, do what they did in indeed the last Dread film, stick them in a block wall with no no backup. And uh, so the adventure has to pretty much lob you in immediately. We knew we wanted the briefing because that would be amazing and very easy ways to do adventure hooks. You could have a, a, a two-line third entry on a daily briefing that turns into a campaign for adventures down the line. And these things can all be linked up and great ways to stick gags in and background information and so on and so forth. And that seemed very logical. But more than anything, it was about getting the judges to be judges from day one without uh, having both their massive firepower immediately unbalance the adventure, but uh, allowing them not to uh, not to instantly be wiped out by suddenly lobbing eight million you know, ravaging blockers or, or whatever at them. And it, it, as you mentioned, at this point, it was a particularly um, busy time for uh, Games Workshop, um, particularly with the role-playing uh, line. So, um, well, the, all down the line, you know, back then, I, people always talk about oh, how how you know White Dwarf became a catalogue for Games Workshop after it moved up after the Citadel buyout, but it always was. But that warehouse was full of regular board games and Christmas toys, copies of Trivial Pursuit and chess sets, and amazing Go sets. Uh, but then the board games were also going gangbusters. Talisman had been out about a year and was heading for a second edition with the first stage of working on Blood Bowl that Jervis was working on. Jervis was in the sales team at that time. But uh, we used to gather to watch the early, uh, early days of uh, Channel 4 Sunday afternoon American football presented by Nicky Horn, which I think Ian referred to last time, and the, the first glimmerings of fantasy football coming out of that. But then we had the idea to stick out all sorts of games. Warrior Knights was developing um, the uh, the redone Railway Rivals, the classic Francis Tresham Railway game, and so many other uh, uh, projects were hoving to. We're also bringing in games, turning them into British editions. As I say, Cthulhu was being planned at that point, but we're also looking at Stormbringer and Paranoia. RuneQuest, we're talking about bringing in again. It had been brought in for a British printing before. We were, we were, there was so much going on and it, uh, it was just wondrous because a lot of it was coming under Workshop's Aegis as well. So it wasn't just bringing in 
a couple of hundred copies and selling them and maybe running like a champion's adventure or just to pick an example uh, in White Dwarf. It was a lot more about doing our own games that we could then support fully and build proper communities around, uh, whether it was Golden Heroes and Dread and then making things like Cthulhu and Traveller our own games. And of course, all this was set against the fact that TSR UK had set up across the last year or two. And up in Cambridge, those guys were starting to take D&D back. Workshop uh, was always going to keep selling it. It was still the core game. White Dwarf would always support it because it was the game more than any other uh, by a factor of, of, of many multiples that the readers would play and vote for. But ultimately, Workshop had to create its own games, both board games and role-playing games, if it was going to survive. Uh, what they didn't know, actually, was that the uh, the little bit up in uh, first in Newark and then in Nottingham they were funding to make some toy soldiers who were then coming up with their own first glimmerings of rule systems would actually be the bit that would, more than anything, take that off to a whole new dimension. But that's, uh, that's, that's another story entirely from Dread. But, of course, Dread came out at a time when the buyout had just been talked about. So uh, at Games Day 85... And uh, the uh, the writing was on the wall. Some of us knew we'd be heading up to Nottingham, which is where I'm speaking to you from now. So you can see where that worked. Uh, and others were, were deciding that perhaps they were going to see what happened. And others were, were heading off to, 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 to do other things, as I think Ian again talked about. So of course, at that time, uh, Warhammer role-playing game was being developed wasn't it um so what pretty much yeah that that was really from the from the start of the of the nottingham studio and the the, the final move which which i was a part of along with uh jervis the blood bowl guy and uh, lindsey Priestley, who still works in the black library fiction line obviously uh, uh married to, to rick Priestley these days and a couple of other folks um we moved up in april 86 and the design studio uh, properly took uh, took shape in the uh, some little offices at Enfield Chambers in the centre of Nottingham, and from day one, a lot of it was moving stuff up that was in some stage of development, picking up the production of White Dwarf, which is a big thing, you know, eighty four page or whatever, ninety six page, mostly colour magazine every single month, and uh, Stephen Ian had managed to get Warlock, the fighting fantasy magazine, to be picked up as well as a kind of a junior White Dwarf, which is what I was given to uh, to work on. Uh, because I'd, I'd been doing so, I'd done the Fighting Fantasy Monster Book and the World Book by that point. And uh, there was an awful lot going on. Uh, Blood Bowl was taking shape. Uh, new editions of various other things were taking shape. And then, as I say, there's, uh, the, uh, the, the Wolfrup uh, was the big, big project. But also Warhammer Second Edition, which we should never forget that. Uh, fantasy Roleplay very much overshadowed it because when it came out, it very much was the pinnacle of a certain type of game design, but also a certain type of game presentation. Just the fact that in the book you would have 64 pages of floor plans of all the different buildings of the Empire with a front view and a floor plan view. It's amazing how much of that was done for the first time in uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. It was helped by the fact that some of the guys were working on it had already been doing genius work over at TSR, you know, Phil Gallagher, Jim Bambra. We then had uh, Graham Davis, who'd been writing stuff for White Dwarf and uh, and Imagine, a Carl Sargent coming in as a freelancer, uh, Paul Coburn moving over as a, as a games editor, uh, which who I worked alongside, uh, again from uh, um, Imagine, and uh, and then Steve Hand, another Maverick game designer, and just a, an absolute top class team who had seen what what was you know the pinnacle of incredible production values as well as great game design with the, the latest iterations of advanced D&D and took it further, but certainly captured the atmosphere. And people talk about it in such fond terms, I think because of the atmosphere. 
Warhammer is uh, lives and dies because of its because of the Warhammer world and 40k even more so. But Warhammer fantasy roleplay is what I think gave the fantasy end of end of Warhammer its longevity. That, as I said earlier, that European feel where there's vast amounts of decay and filth and disease and religious cults and almost that millennial fever of people scourging themselves in the streets and hanging each other off giant wheels. Hieronymus Bosch approach to fantasy rather than D&D fantasy land with a renaissance fair where everyone wears those cute little leather boots that fold down and oh there's an evil necromancer living in the next village. Well, if, if he's an evil necromancer how has he managed to get away with living in the next village for 40 years? In the Warhammer world everything's evil and hidden under the surface but it's always been foul and dangerous you know you don't go in the woods after dark in the warmer world you well, don't certainly don't you know, with your jolly adventurers in it, a D setting in a recent game uh, it concluded with um somebody getting a stiletto driven through their eye so sounds a sounds a perfect conclusion to a, a woofer game yeah and so did the transition from um all this role-playing activity to the switch to uh, the miniatures and the uh, Warhammer uh, skirmish rules. Was that as sudden um, for you who were producing it as it was for us who were playing the games? Or did you see it coming? Well, I think I think there's a whole bunch of things that in hindsight you can see happening. The first thing is that the bit that was successful was Citadel. And they bought Stephen Ian and, and the company out and moved it up to Nottingham. And they wanted to make success of the things that were going to be successful. But ultimately, the margin on miniatures is uh, more attractive than in role play. You need a lot more bits with tabletop games. So for a company to survive, you can't just sell them a supplement for 10 quid and a rule set for 40 quid and then leave them to it. Yeah, maybe six, six adventurers and six monsters. You need them buying into it as a hobby. And actually, you look at where Workshop is compared to certainly the British companies, you see that that tactic and that business plan has worked out. But it wasn't as clear cut as that. It, the, the board games were very, very strong and there were games being being worked on there. We were bringing in a bunch of West End games. It's a wonderful little game called Kings and Things, which actually channels a lot of the spirit of Divine Right, um, but with more of a Settlement of Catan hexagon grid where you lay out randomly and then try and build your fantasy kingdoms. Uh, designed by Tom Wham, who did a lot of the very funny games in Dragon, Snitch Revenge and Awful Green Things from Outer Space back in the 80s. Um, but all those games, we were, were bringing in Paranoia by that point. We started doing uh, some of the chaos in spin-off games like uh, Stormbringer, the Ulrich game. There was talk of a Slain game uh, using uh, a modified version of the, the Dread uh, things, and we did some research in that. We also looked at Rogue Trooper game. It became a board game in the end. A lot of those things were, were, being, were being worked on for many years, and Blood Bowl, you know, as we know, it went away for a while, but it's still there, and they've just had another amazing uh, uh, reissue of that out and uh, that one's never going to go away. But that was a lot of what I was working on. You asked me what I was doing on, on Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, but the honest truth is, was myself and a guy called Mike Brunton, another ex-TSR uh, guy, were doing everything else. So while the majority of the team got uh, Warhammer Fantasy out, an amazing huge book, plus supplements, plus the whole product line for it, and White Dwarf support, Mike and I got out 12 issues of White Dwarf, four issues of Warlock, and three board games. And often, often using dead studio time, just like in the London days, because everyone was working on fantasy roleplay, and that was the right way round. Fantasy roleplay was what was remembered for pretty much, but ultimately, a lot of that was being championed elsewhere. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, the core of Games Workshop then, and to some extent still now, were tabletop gamers, people in love with the most those amazing miniatures, the most characterful designs, the, the sculptors, and then the guys who are making the rules to play with them. And that's never changed. That's always been the core of the Nottingham business. But I think, you know, it's easy when uh, when a company says, well, we're, we're bringing in this role play stuff, but only 100 people are buying it. So actually, we're going to be pushing more of this other stuff that thousands of people are buying to uh, if you're a fan of the the more obscure thing to assume there's a conspiracy but it wasn't even a cock up it was the way the wind was blowing commercially yeah. and they supported some games long after they needed to particularly in the pages of white dwarf but also by bringing those games in and trying to sell them in the shops until eventually it became they're going to sell their games because they're the thing that uh, keeps the business going and they're the things they're most interested in and you know what we always used to say yes it, well it's all very well you if you're a big fan of game x or game y that's not getting supported why don't you go off and set up a little company and bring it in and these days the guys who did do that whether it's cubicle seven or mongoose and the various other guys and plenty of guys in the states they continue to do exactly that so it's about yeah if you're actually that much of a fan don't just whinge get off your butt and go do it the white dwarf White Dwarf's Adventures in the Mega City. Dread would make an ideal subject for a game, but how? Should it be a role-playing game or a board game? Both were ideal, but I decided on a board game to be followed next year by an RPG supplement. So said the godfather of British gaming, Ian Livingstone, in his article on the Judge Dread board game in White Dwarf 36. Well, okay, I would have preferred an RPG, but as it turned out, the Judge Dread board game was a bit of a classic, with a stunning Brian Bolland box art, a beautiful painted board by Ian Gibson, and cards featuring art from the progs by Mike Mahone, Brian Bolland, Ron Smith and others. It looked fantastic. The gameplay was great too. The cards gave a high degree of replayability, and Ian Livingstone captured the mixture of action and humour in the Dread Strip really effectively. And who could resist a bit of impromptu role-playing during a game? Think Angel? That's the last month's gum wrapper you drop on the pedwar, creep. You're doing six months in the cubes. Yes, the Judge Dread board game would do very nicely until we had an RPG. After all, we only had a year to wait. Well, 1983 came and went, but no Judge Dread RPG. Same for 1984. At least this meant we were getting more than an RPG supplement, I suppose. 1985? Well, right at the tail end of the year, it finally appeared. Opening White Dwarf 73 and turning to the open box. Holy cremola, there it was. A review of the Judge Dread role-playing game from Mark Gascoigne and Rick Priestley. And the reviewer was none other than Jason Kingsley, who would go on to found Rebellion, the video game company. The very same Rebellion that would later rescue 2000 AD from the late 90s doldrums by buying it from the publishers Egmont. It's a funny world, isn't it? Anyway, the important thing was that Judge Dread RPG was a Games Workshop product and so would bound to get good coverage in White Dwarf, right? Well, it took a few issues, but from issues 76 to 96, numerous articles and scenarios were published. Of course, many of us didn't realise it at the time, but this was also the Vancean end of times of RPGs in White Dwarf. Still, the Judge Dread RPG took full advantage 
of its chance to shine in the feeble rays of that dying sun. The articles. That first article was hotly anticipated, by me at least. What aspect of the crazy, high-octane place of Megacity 1 would be covered, I wondered. Something to add real adrenaline rush to those initial games as the judges took to the streets, no doubt. Well, the answer was... Budgeting and accountancy. Hmm. In your book, in issue 76, Marcus Rowland took an in-depth look at the Justice Department's accounts division and how they could hinder and sometimes help the players. Reading this back recently, I think Marcus's tongue was very firmly planted into his cheek when he wrote this, and to be fair, he did supply a few interesting adventure hooks, with some input from Terry Pratchett, no less. All the same, this wasn't exactly the dynamic, all-guns-blazing opening we might have hoped for. I wanted dangerous perps, exotic locales and exciting shootouts. I wasn't in it for the bean counting. Ah, well, at least the article had some nice artwork from Mark Harrison, also producing the traveller strip in White Dwarf at the time. A quick aside on the artwork for Dread Features in White Dwarf. When they put together this Dread role-playing game, as with the board game before it, Games Workshop realised that they had a wealth of art available straight from the pages of 2000 AD. So much so that, as far as I'm aware, the box cover art by Terry Oakes was the only art produced specifically for the game. Not so in White Dwarf. Instead, regular White Dwarf artists turned their artistic skills to portraying Old Stony Face in the Meg. The aforementioned Mark Harrison, Carl Critchlow of Thrud the Barbarian fame, and David Stevens, a regular artist from the Paranoia scenarios, all illustrated articles and or scenarios. The results were, to my mind, mixed. I liked Mark Harrison's depiction of Dread, but I don't think Carl Critchlow's style at the time, well, suited for Thrud, worked as well for Judge Dread. The irony isn't lost on me that both went on to be artists for 2080. My favourite art came with one of Hugh Tynan's scenarios and was provided by the late, great Brett Ewins. Looking at it now, it's a poignant reminder of how much he's missed from the pages of 2080. More articles appeared as the Judge Dread RPG firmly established itself in the pages of the magazine. In issue 79, Carl Sargent looked at side judges. I was always wary of using side judges in my games, stemming, I suspect, from my antipathy to psionics in AD&D. But this article nevertheless gave some good advice to players on role-playing a side judge, using their psi abilities in play, and offered a new ability, metabolic control, to balance the perceived physical weakness of a side judges in the game. Carl Sargent also looked at informers and narcs in issue 82, providing extra details on their use not found in the rule books, but very much with the emphasis on investigative police procedural style of play. In the article, he made the assertion, The Judge Dread game is not primarily a fast action game. It's a game based on detective work interspersed with combat sequences. Really? Really? I know the emphasis isn't solely on combat, 
but I wanted a game that reproduced the thrills and craziness, the edge of the stories in the progs, not Juliet Bravo in knee pads. What I needed were some articles on topics a little more out there. Enter Marcus Rowland once more. Dispensing with double entry bookkeeping in issue 86, he tackled the trouble with time. This was clearly a subject that had long fascinated Mr. Rowland as he'd examined it for AD&D way back in issue 29. Anyway, this was more like it. Precogs predicting disaster for Megacity. Time loops, paradoxes, all good head-spinning stuff. A printing error in the article meant that you read the same small section twice. Layout cock-up or a suspicious time loop? Hmm... I also really enjoyed Carl Sargent's snappily titled article from issue 90. You'll never take me alive, cop. Ah! This comprehensively covered playing a perp rather than a judge, including character generation, new special abilities, perps will need all the help they can get, and a focus on the concerns specific to a criminal, the accumulation of both resources and status in the criminal underworld. It's a really intriguing article, and rereading it recently, I was struck on how these ideas could be evolved in light of how RPGs have changed over the years. When Mr Sargent discussed perps planning a job, I wondered how that could be played out with the plans emerging via flashbacks. Hmm, last saws in the dark, anyone? It finished with a number of good plot seeds for running a perp-based game, from simple raids to cultivating a bent judge, right up to a full-scale mob war. For the full megacity experience, though, you have to turn to the scenarios. One of my biggest criticisms of the Judge Dread Games Master's book is that it gives the prospective GM little advice or guidance on how to construct scenarios particularly if they're centred around an investigation. Two pages in the introductory chapter is your lot, I'm afraid. So, example scenarios were sorely needed to A, give the GM something to run once they've completed the scenario and the rules, and B, provide templates and ideas for the creation of new adventures. Happily, White Dwarf obliged in the shape of Mr Scenario himself, Marcus L. Rowland, ably assisted by Hugh Tynan. As usual, the following discussion, I'll do my best to avoid spoilers. I'll also focus on the full-length scenarios rather than the plot outlines that were published in a few issues. Marcus L. Rowland kicked things off in issue 78 with The Sprung Ones. This followed the pattern established in the rulebook of starting the adventure with a Hill Street Blue-style crime briefing and skillfully interwove police procedural investigation with some of the crazier elements that very much devote Megacity 1 in the comic. All the disparate elements came together in a finale that gave the GM lots of scope for causing chaos and confusion for the players with citizens, spons and the notorious Guts Brothers needing to be dealt with. Unlike many scenarios from Marcus Rowland, it was peppered with little ideas and hooks that the GM could expand on later, including some nice art from Mark Harrison 
and great maps by Nick Weeks. This was a fine opening salvo for Dread Adventures in White Dwarf. The next two scenarios came from Hugh Tynan. A Day in the Life of Sector 255 in issue 83 again, followed by the fast emerging standard of an opening with a crime briefing. This adventure recreated a routine patrol for the judges with lots of incidents, both trivial and dangerous for them to handle without an overarching plot tying it all together. I think it was very much inspired by the classic story The Graveyard Shift by John Wagner, with art by Ron Smith. Tharg Note, C. Prog 335-341, which similarly portrayed Dread having to deal with incidents one after another on a typical patrol, all the while avoiding paperwork. There were some nice touches to this scenario, an interrogation by the SJS gave the GM a chance to flex their role-playing muscles and make their players sweat. And one of the incidents that the players encounter foreshadowed another classic Dread Story arc, Mechanismo, by a good few years. Hugh Tynan then followed this up with a sequel, A Night in the Death of Sector 255, in issue 88. A number of characters and incidents from the early scenario were carried over and further developed in this one, but this time the scenario did feature a main plot. Organised footsies are out to cause as much mayhem, death and destruction as possible. A carefully plotted timeline of this adventure and the regular messages that were issued to the players really gave the impression of a living, breathing sector. The scenario also featured some nice 1980s cultural references. ZX Spectrum fans will appreciate the shout-out to Christian Penfold and Mel Croucher of Automator. And the final confrontation in a cross between a Bond villain's lair and a Wonka chocolate factory. Oh yes, this was the kind of inspired lunacy we wanted in the Just Dread RPG. Both of Hugh Tynan's adventures were fully linear. Dare I say railroady. Now, these days, that seems to be a dirty word in RPGs, but I'm not so sure. I briefly mentioned in the last episode, when discussing Call of Cthulhu scenarios, the conflict I see in investigative scenarios between plot and player agency. When running an investigation scenario, as the GM, you surely want a cleverly constructed plot to be gradually revealed, leading towards a satisfying climax. You don't want your players wandering off down meaningless blind alleys. But that conflicts with the fact that you're playing a role-playing game where anything can happen. How do you square the circle between satisfying player agency while at the same time building towards a grand finale? Well, I think Hugh Tynan's adventures showed the way to do it. While there is a linear plot, the players were presented with open-ended situations and events along the way. It was up to them how they tackled each one and so drove the plot forward providing plenty of scope for the players to make their own choices. As he said at the end of A Night in the Death of Sector 255, players should make their own decisions and draw their own conclusions when it came to playing the adventure. Control should only be used in extremists to drop hints and gently nudge the players along when necessary. Marcus Rowland came roaring back with a proper megacity epic. 
spread over three parts from issues 94 to 96. To live and die in Megacity 1 was his swan song in the pages of White Dwarf, and it was epic not only in length, but also in scope. Something of a Judge Dredd's greatest hits package, drawing inspiration from a number of famous Judge Dredd stories. The main thrust of the plot was the continuation of a certainly claimed time-travelling tale from 2000 AD. No spoilers, remember? But there are also echoes of both Cursed Earth and Block Mania in the adventure. Ambitious games masters could even run the scenario with two separate teams of players. Shades of amber to red from all those years ago. Part 1 had very much set the scene with a number of disparate events and problems thrown at the players as things escalated. The plot gradually emerged. Marcus's humour was well to the fore. You won't be surprised to learn that Judge's fodder and Coppit didn't make it. And I can't help feeling that the footsie named Chaos Spiky Bits was Marcus Rowland's comment on the direction which Games Workshop was heading. Add in the city death unit going postal, a serial killer, a major industrial accident, and this part alone was more than enough to keep a team of judges occupied. But Marcus was only just getting started. Part 2 opened with the SJS interrogation of the team. Clearly, White Dwarf scenario writers liked the idea of the gamesmaster turning up the heat on the players. Before the judges embarked on a trip through a raging radstorm into the nuked south of Megacity 1, needing to locate an abandoned Susan vault. Susan? Suspended animation. Keep up, citizen. Marcus Rowland was at the top of his game here, with lots of effective description that created a great atmospheric location. The main threat in this part of the scenario brought to mind the Robot Rebellion, a classic from the early days of 2000 AD, and put the players in a good deal of danger. But hey, there were compensations. The players got to drive a land cruiser, killdozer combination, last seen in the Cursed Earth. And who wouldn't want to do that? For me, this was the best part of the whole adventure. The setting was novel, the mission exciting, and with communications down due to the storm, the players had to rely on each other's skills and ingenuity without any backup from control. And so to part three. The beginning was a bit exposition heavy and talky, with the judges just as bystanders. It did feature a cameo from a certain blonde female side judge though. Steady on there lads. The action quickly ramped up to a big finale against a big baddie. This final confrontation is very evocative and certainly a very tough battle for the player characters. Marcus Rowland provided three possible endings, chucking in a head-scratching time paradoxes with abandon to provide a satisfying conclusion to the adventure, no matter how that final conflict played out for the judges. Taking all three parts together, it was one hell of an adventure, and fitting sign-off for the one, the only, Marcus L. Rowland. And then, well, unfortunately, that was it. No more dread in White Dwarf, a real shame. 
Dredd himself arrested Marcus Rowland and carted him off to the ISO cubes. And not long after that, the Justice Department prohibited any role-playing content from the pages of White Dwarf. The RPG era was over. Drock it! Attack attack! Welcome to the lofty heights of the loft here at Dirt Towers, the location of our archives, where we delve deep into our past with some of our stored artefacts from the past to help illuminate our discussions. Um, and coming through the hatch, we've got Judge Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. You okay there? Mm. So here we are in the uh, loft of uh, Dirt Towers. Now, of course, um, 2000 AD. Yes. used to say that King's Reach Tower was a Tharg spaceship. It was, it was wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was a ridiculous idea. They, they take us for fools, believe they did. They, did. That they lived fools. in some kind of yeah. tower. Tharg, man in a rubber mask, wasn't it? At the end of our street lived our first employer. Yes, Bernard, the news agent. And he, we used to deliver newspapers, didn't we, for yeah. him? Otherwise known as Rasputin. Yeah. <laughs> he looked a bit like Rasputin. Well, he didn't look like he didn't look like Rasputin. If you see a picture of Rasputin, he didn't look like Rasputin. For some reason, we christened him Rasputin, didn't we? Yeah, because he was bald and had a beard. So. He was bald and he had like a pointy beard. He looked yeah. more like William Shakespeare. He did. But, yeah. but for some reason, we, we, we called him Rasputin. I don't know why. And why I bring Bernard into this is because he was very influential in my formative years uh, because... Um, he used to be a science fiction enthusiast, and my family never were. Mm, yeah. uh, and he was the one who we, I used to go whilst he was numbering the papers, you know, putting oh, yeah. numbers, house in, numbers on, yeah. putting house numbers on. Yeah. And we talk about the space shuttle and um, the Voyager missions. Mm, yeah. And he'd allow me to leaf through some of the magazines at the time. I think there was on Insight, and it was collectible parts yeah. and. Allowed you to leaf through the magazines without saying, Are you going to buy that? Yeah. Or exactly. look at it all day. Exactly. And I think he was the one who actually gave me my first copies of Asimov. Mm, yeah. yeah. He had a real keen interest. And I think what that reminds me of is that at that time, at that time, beginning of the 80s, there was a belief with the uh, space shuttle and everything that that, that would be our future. Well, well yeah, future it was, space uh, would be yeah, our future. The space was the future because we'd invented a spaceship that could come back. It yeah. could come back. It didn't. It wasn't like a rocket that, that fell apart and you parachuted back in in a little landing. It was came back, didn't it? The space yeah. shuttle. And yeah. <laughs> that's that thing. You, yeah, you thought this is it now. We've cracked it. Yeah. It's, all, it's only a matter of, of years before we've got a Millennium Falcon, an X-wing <laughs> fighter, just going up and back from the moon, and you can have your holiday on the moon. That's that's what we thought. I remember watching the first space shuttle launch. And it, was, it was amazing. This this. We'd invented it. It's a kind of distinction, I think, between a rocket and a spaceship. A rocket was a rocket, but the space shuttle was a spaceship, yeah. a proper spaceship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't quite work out that. Like and I think that Bernard used to let me look at those uh, magazines and previews mm. of those magazines because I think he used to read my copy of Two Thousand AD before I got it. Did he? Yeah. You think? Yeah. No, is that wrong if you're a news agent? <laughs> news agents, right in. Is it wrong to read someone's magazine before they get it? I think as long as there's no delay in you getting it, I think it's legitimate. Did you get 2008 from the start? Did you? No, no. I got it. I got it because you got it. You you got into it before me, didn't you? I think. Yeah. And I used to read your copies, and then eventually I had it delivered as well. 
Yeah. I think I had it delivered. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you? I, you were slightly posher than I, me. Slightly right? posher. Yeah. How hard though it is to believe. I, yeah. he, he used to save it. Yeah. Used to save it. I think you used to deliver mine. <laughs> you paper round. I think you delivered it. It's like Downton Abbey. <laughs> you, you delivered my two thousand AD. I in the pages. At the butler to I in the pages, and then it was brought up to me on a tray. Yeah, and your neighbour's jazz mics. Yeah. <laughs> in a brown paper bag. Yeah, it's scratching <laughs> at all times. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, I got I got the first uh, two thousand AD because I remember it distinctly because I was nine at the time, mm. and I was in hospital. I was having my appendix out. Mm. And the week that it was released, I got it. My mum uh, brought it. And the only reason I remember it, well, there's, two, there's two reasons I remember it. First reason is that the free gift was a, a space spinner. And um, mm. I used to throw it from bed to bed. So when the lights went out, we would get the space spinner <laughs> and chuck it from bed to bed, the kids on the <laughs> children's ward. Um, and I lost it. I lost it, and I asked my mum to get another one. Did you lose it, or did one of the nurses confiscate it? Did one of the nurses find it on the floor and think, oh, Christ, the idiot keeps throwing this around. You're in the bin. Say he's lost it. And I think, I think my mum ended up bringing uh, four or five in. <laughs> the nurses Fine. thinking, oh, no. <laughs> and the thing I remember um, when the second issue came out was of distinctive art. I don't think I took, paid much attention to the... Uh, first issue, I think mm. it was the second issue that caught my eye, particularly uh, Judge Dredd yeah. uh, uh, at the time but I must be honest, I don't think I was a regular uh, reader of it until those early 80s and I think yes. I started yeah. um, reading it around the time that the um, Judge Death second yes. yeah. and I, I think I remember happened. reading those at your house uh, and then soon after Kind of getting it regularly. We both started getting it regularly. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it was a, it was that strange thing, wasn't it? Of I have quite vivid memories. This may paint me in a bad light, but I have vivid memories of the school library having the science fiction books. But when you were sort of, you know, even primary school had a few science fiction books knocking around. But when you were uh, sort of ten, eleven years old, you you, you like the idea of science fiction books because yeah. you like Star Wars and I like Doctor Who and what have you, but whenever you read them, they weren't quite what you wanted at that age, were they? No. Because they were a bit more cerebral, a bit more... Lacking in action. Lacking in action, yeah. You, you essentially, at that age, when you were sort of 10 years old, you wanted a gunfight, you wanted a blaster fight, didn't you, like Star Wars? And, of course, read some Brian Aldis, and that's not always giving you, you know? No. Well, that's not, not, I'm not, that's not a criticism of him, of course. It's just that's not what they're doing, is no. it? Isaac Asimov isn't doing that. Um, I think 2000 AD filled that vacuum, didn't it? It yeah. gave us a kind of accessible, readily accessible science fiction stories. I say science fiction, science fantasy, I suppose, really, yeah. aren't they? Well, um, action, action, adventure. The action, the adventure, and yeah. that's, that's what you wanted at that age. And it filled that vacuum, didn't it, that yeah. you couldn't quite get from science fiction books because you couldn't... Not that it wasn't out there, but you couldn't sort of navigate your way through it. I have memories of, re of getting hold of science fiction books that had exciting covers and reading them and thinking, yeah. you know, 11 years old, thinking, oh, what's this? This isn't really what I want, you know. It's only yeah. later on that you start to appreciate those kind of things. Let's talk about uh, games and, and just read in particular. So I'm going to open the box hmm. on this. Now, this is a game that... Um, 
I got, but I don't think you played, did you? No, I don't think I, I, I think you and Eddie had a few games. I didn't. I didn't play it for one reason or another. I had the board game. Yeah, they released the board on. game, didn't yeah. they? Well before the role playing game. But um, no, I never played the role playing game. So the board game was more of a card based game, mm. wasn't it? Where yeah, you went yeah. through Mega City yeah, One. And you, you had to arrest perps. You turned over cards, I think, and arrested a perp, and you turned over another card for the crime. Yes. So yeah, judge death for littering. Yeah, that was that a kind of crazy thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. That's the famous thing that everybody quotes. But yeah. in, in essence, it worked really well, didn't it? It was quite good fun collecting yeah, the yeah, perps yeah. and the cards. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, designed by Ian Levinstone. Mm. And Judge, Judge, um, the Judge Dread role-playing game came much later and I think at that time there were other distractions and I think it was harder for us to get yeah, together in yeah, those yeah, later, yeah. later uh, times. See, to me it's a perfect combination, um, uh, Dread and role-playing. Um, because, you know, in the Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, mm. um, another podcast, other podcasts... Well, the others do exist, do Yeah. Mm. Okay. I've, I've taken from uh, uh, what Roger and uh, Mike say. So what, what Mike always says, Mike Cool, is that for a new game to mm. succeed, it has to pass a couple of tests. And the, fir the first one is for the players. The players need to understand who they are in the world yes. and what they need to do yes. um, in a sentence. Yes. Yeah. If it takes any more than that, yeah, you've lost them. Yeah, you don't quite know what you're doing. Yeah. And the other one uh, that they have, the improv rad test. You see what I've done there? Improv rad. Yeah. The improv rad test. The next, the next thing that they need to do is you've got to be able to list at least six scenarios off the top of your head. Yeah. That you could run. Yeah. And I think that's where Judge Red works perfectly because, as a judge, you know what your motivations are. Why are you talking to me now? <laughs> what do you mean as a judge, as in Judge Dredd? Because <laughs> I don't know what my motivations are. <laughs> hey, sorry, been flipping. Yeah, you've been dreading this as well. You've been dreading it, yeah. <laughs> this judge has been dreading it. <laughs> so, as a, as, a, as a player, you're cast as a judge yes. in this world. Yeah. So you know what you've got to do. You know it's a clear, clearly defined role, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's not like a generic role playing game where you can be anything and do anything it's you're a judge so go and do that and, and in some senses some people might see that as straight jacketing but at the same time it can be quite it can be a good thing yeah because you know this is what you're supposed to do go and sort out criminals in yeah. city one and the expectation is is that you arrest criminals yes and it's not a free fire Yes. Um, and you're constrained by the law as much as yes. enabled yeah, by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can choose to either deviate from it or yeah. go with it's, it. It's almost, in terms of science fiction role playing, it's the polar opposite of Traveller, isn't it? Yeah. When we talk about Traveller, people invariably say that Traveller always descended into space piracy and general mayhem because players could do what they wanted. And, and I suppose it goes back to them, that first point that Mike Cool's made that in some senses in the Traveller universe you didn't quite know what you were supposed to do yeah. you know there was the merchant thing but even that you didn't have to do that so no one really knew what they were supposed to be doing apart from what the scenario dictated but as you say in Judge Dredd you, you know what you're supposed to do you're a judge yes yeah and on the other point uh, Mega City 1 is full of great perps great yeah, criminals good setting isn't it great setting 
it's been generating stories for yes. over 40 yeah. years. Yeah. So it's not surprising. It's been, it's been designed, I suppose, to, yeah. to generate stories, hasn't it? And, and almost everything in it is the result of a story in 2000 AD. Exactly. So from that, scenarios readily sort of spring, don't they? So we're going to look at the rules for Judge Dredd in a bit more detail yeah. next time. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's an interesting game from that point of view that... Oh, I, I do think it's a, a good game, a great setting. Mm. No matter what the rules set, you know, being a judge in Mega City 1... Yeah. You know, who doesn't want to do that? Yeah, yeah, and you inst as a player you'd instantly know... Not instantly, if you didn't know what 2000 AD and Judge Dredd was, but generally speaking, you you instantly know. And you don't really have to be that familiar with it. I mean, most people in the world of RPGs and science fiction know what Judge Dredd is and get, have a general idea. And in a sense, that's all you need, isn't it? So you dig... Again, one of the, one of the pluses of it is... Because, it, again, it's sort of failing of some games that are set in a fictional setting, is you have to know a lot about the setting to play it, to feel comfortable in it. But with Judge Dredd, you don't really. It's a simple principle, isn't it? Yeah. As a player, you know, if you have a, a vague understanding... Because it's like Eddie, isn't it? Eddie played it with you. And I don't think Eddie was a big 2000 AD fan, no. was he? But no. he instantly knew, he knew, he knew what it was, and it worked. Yes. You don't need a, a huge amount of knowledge about, you know... I think it suits us as well because it's mission-based. Yeah. A bit sandboxy because, you know, it's Hill Street Blues, you know, you're given a patrol um, yeah. briefing every morning, yeah. you can choose your route through it, um, but it's yeah. based on action. Yeah. And it's got a bit of a sense of humour about it. Well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> that. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Let's go and bust the Stooky Glanders. <laughs> So what about you, Judge Dredd, uh, Thank you very much. <laughs> what about you, uh, Judge Blythe? Oh, I'm just Judge Blythe, never mind. <laughs> what about you? So if you had to uh, pick a 2000 AD story to create a game from, what would, you, what would you go for? Well, I think I'd have to go for Nemesis. The Warlock. That, Nemesis the Warlock, because that was my, my favourite um, 2000 AD story, I think, when we were reading it. I mean, yeah. I like Judge Dread, and I like some of the others, but that, that in particular was a great story, and a great setting as well, you know. Again, again, it has that thing of it's a, it's a very it's a very evocative setting, but also it's clear, isn't it, what's going on? So, you know, yeah. there's the, the kind of mutants being persecuted by the, the pure humans and that kind of thing. So there's a role-playing, a role-playing setting, it'd be perfect, wouldn't it? Because you'd know exactly where you stood with everything, and your motivations would be nice and clear as well. Yeah. In Nemesis as well had a feeling of gothic horror that I think yeah. certainly yeah. influenced our games. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, what, what I, thinking back now, what was interesting about Nemesis was it sort of turned things on its head a bit in that the humans were the villains, weren't yeah. they? Uh, and the weird mutant alien things were the with the victims, and so you you attempted to side with them, which again, sort of at that at that age was was an unusual thing, wasn't it? Because you traditionally brought up with okay, alien invaders, humans resisting alien invasion, that kind of thing. But Nemesis turned that on its head, didn't it? Yeah. And I can remember reading it as a kid, and 
shocking is perhaps the wrong word, but it had a kind of unsettling effect on you where you read it and thought, oh, hang on, the, right, so the, the humans are, are bad, yeah. you know. And it, and it tied into the risk of sounding pretentious, but at the time, you know, in the 80s, you had South Africa and apartheid and things like that going on. And it sort of tapped into that, didn't it? The idea yeah. that, you know, it's a, in many respects, I think Nemesis the Warlock tapped into a lot of sort of political things that were going on at the time. Yeah, I think a lot of the you know, uh, 2000 AD um, stories did. I think they did tap yeah. in with uh, current affairs. And what they did is kind of bolt them together with popular culture at the time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. what was popular at the time and mm. ideas that were popular. I think the uh, look of Nemesis as well mm. it is great. I think I hooked you into 2018 through relaying a story which... Yeah, I, I think you did, with Nemesis, yeah. Yeah, yeah where yeah. Uh, the Blitzbeer had crash-landed at the end of the Earth and the mm. humans had uh, hanged him from a mm, gallows. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And they were visited upon by... Flies, flies yeah. and they were suffocated by flies. And yeah. uh, well, let's say I think you're right. Other stories did have political undertones and yeah. tapped in, but Nemesis in particular was, was quite acute with Nemesis because of that gothic horror thing. Yeah, and, um, it, it was of all the stories. In some respects, it was it was kind of quite edgy, wasn't it? Yeah, in lots of ways, I think. And I think uh, it's apparent other other uh, other stories were. The underdog was celebrated. So, uh, talking of dogs, strontium uh, dog, strontium dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but they they fed it, and they, they, I mean, strontium dog fed into sort of Gamma World, didn't it? Yes. I remember buying Gamma World, and part of that was the idea. I mean, a bit of a mistake because Gamma World wasn't like strontium dog, but it was a post-apocalyptic game with mutants. Yeah. So it felt it felt on the face of it that it was, but it wasn't. Um, Mongoose actually produced a supplement uh, written by Lawrence Whitaker yeah, of yeah. Uh, Mithras fame, um, which is pretty good actually because it does do that thing of uh, creating a world very yeah. easily yeah. and it uses the traveller mechanics. But you can see how bounty hunting is, is a good way of delivering yeah. stories. Kind of classic role playing thing, isn't it? Being a bounty hunter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, go and fetch this man. Go, go and fetch them, but, dead or alive. Well, the thing I was thinking of more was uh, Meltdown Man, which was a story that I loved. Yeah. And I know that there were mixed feelings amongst the 2008 staff about it, but it, I loved it because that was um, Planet of the Apes turned on his head. So, mm. um, what was he called? SAS. That's the thing. So, SAS was a big thing in the early 80s, wasn't it? Everybody wanted... If you were a kid... Oh, yeah, yeah, the SAS, yeah. Who Dares Wins, Lewis Collins and the Iranian Embassy. Yeah, Iranian Embassy siege, yeah. Yeah, the SAS kind of... People People didn't really know who they were until then, did they? Yeah. And then, so, I mean, they'd been around for, for donkey's years, haven't they? But people didn't know who they were until the Iranian Embassy siege, and then suddenly they everyone wanted to join the SAS. So the protagonist of Meltdown Man was an SAS mm. uh, guy, uh, Nick Stone, who was, because of some strange nuclear explosion... It's always a strange nuclear explosion, isn't it, that creates mutations. Yeah. No, it doesn't quite work like that. It's blasted into the future where... It's to a time where... Uh, animals have been genetic, genetically modified. That's right. Yeah. Um, to be servants of humans. So you can have a giant badger. Yeah. Serving your breakfast. <laughs> What's that? Like a nightmare, isn't it? That? 
<laughs> but the but the striking thing about it was the Berlardini artwork of the animals. Mm. And I used to love. I used to go and uh, to the library and I used to copy the yeah. pictures. Yeah, that was a bit. It was a bit more Gamma World, it wasn't. Yeah. Because Gamma World had that, didn't it? It had um, animals that mutated into like human traits, wouldn't it? But again, that thing with nuclear nuclear war seems to blast people into the future, give people powerful mutations, and have talking rabbits. Yeah. If you're listening, President Trump, it doesn't do any of those things. <laughs> it just kills lots of people. It doesn't do those things. There was this weird thing, wasn't it, in the 80s of nu- nuclear war and nuclear power mutating things, you know, walking fish, talking, talking hedgehogs. It doesn't, doesn't do that. Go to Russia, but they're not got talking hedgehogs. It's just devastation and death. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> the, other, uh, the other strip that uh, Berlardini uh, famously illustrated was Ace Trucking. Mm-hmm. Ace Trucking, yeah. again, took something that was popular, CB yeah. radio, and put it in space yes. with Bart the Garp. Or yeah. is it Garp the Barp? I don't know, one that or the other. pencil-headed... Yeah, uh, GBH wasn't the big, the big thing, GBH. Yeah. And, and feet, feet the Freak. But that, that, was, that informed our games of Traveller, didn't it? Yeah. Ace Trucking, because I can remember... Um, Going back to what I said earlier, when we when we traveller, that sense of what are you supposed to do with it because it's not it's not Star Wars, uh, and there was that idea of being a trader, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, and that seemed boring until we read Ace Trucking and thought, ah, well, no, Ace Trucking is about them being like a space haulage firm. Yeah. And there were lots of stories that came out of that, so it, that fed into traveller quite quite strongly. I think. I, I think I remember the ones about the um, voracious. Mercenaries who were in deep freeze, mm. who defrosted, thawed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What's not to like about that? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But it made. I think I, remember, I do remember because I think on the back of Ace Trucking, we did a travel account. I had a travel account yeah. where you were a merchant. Yeah. And it wasn't. It wasn't like Ace Trucking in terms of the characters, but the principles of it were the same. That you you realised you could have cargoes that were dangerous or problematic and yeah. build stories out of that. Whereas on the face of it, initially. Being a trader in space seemed dull, but Ace Trucking kind of taught us a lesson. That Great big frozen icebergs being hauled through space to desert planets. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. There was yeah. Uh, yeah, all sorts of interesting cargo that created problems. So yeah, Ace Trucking was good, and it had its own lingo, didn't it? It did. Yeah. It had its own. Like, they developed their own, um, like CB radio. It wasn't. It wasn't the same as CB radio, but it was the same kind of thing. And I always remember that there was a cutout and keep booklet. Do you remember of all the slang? Yeah. You know, yeah. which it did tied into that teenage boy thing, didn't it? That you developed your own language that no one else understands. By my, by far my favourite um, strip was um, the Mean Arena. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2000 AD was always full of future sports yeah. uh, back in the day. And, um, you know, you wouldn't believe it to look at me, but I was never very sporty. Um, Hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I found it... It's easy to say that in a podcast. <laughs> if, if people could see you, it wouldn't be... It's not hard to believe, so... Very easy to believe. And there was something attractive about me and Irina because it was like Roy of the Rovers, but with violence. And death. Yeah. And death. <laughs> so the premise of uh, me and Irina is that they would clear streets 
yes. at the time yeah. in the UK and it would be called street football and two teams would pit across this de- deserted town yes. and um, score goals using yeah. the ball it had echoes of uh, the film Rollerball didn't yeah, it Rollerball. it had echoes of Rollerball with Hunger Games uh, you, know, yeah. you know there was uh, that kind of thing that, 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 that kind of thing um, and I liked it a lot because of this idea of locality and they actually went out to people and said mm. design your own team and I yeah. think the Salford Slicers were in there. Yeah. Penzance Pirates mm. um, actually it's a reader's suggestion and I spent months coming up with the, Bol- <laughs> the Bolton Bolters and uh, <laughs> they never did it nor did they do my uh, Thag the Mighty is Uncle Joe from an Uncle Joe's Mint Bar. Can't do that either. No. They miss the trick. These two fools. But me, it, it got me thinking when I was uh, rereading Mina um, Mina because the whole thing of it, that it, it wasn't particularly the game that got me. I was, I, I got into the idea of um, um, Matt Talon's story of his brother being um, killed and him trying to get understand why he was killed and what the conspiracy yeah. was behind it it was a really good um, story yeah. um, it really stood up and Steve Dillon's art nobody wanted to illustrate it apparently Steve Dillon and I did it well it worked, it worked didn't it because it, obviously it's supposedly about sport but obviously it has the one advantage that the, the, the disadvantage of sport has is you don't have to watch the sport yes. it's a comic strip yeah. You know, a bit like Ride the Rovers. I mean, that was all right as a comic strip because you didn't have to watch a match of football for 90, for 90 minutes. minutes yeah. You just watched, you know, 25 minutes. I was thinking that you could hack Blades in the Dark to do a mean arena. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, treat the uh, games like heists. Yeah. Have downtime manager factions. Oh, I can see that coming there. That's coming, isn't it? <laughs> so it's lined up for us this year. See, so factions become a team. You know, yeah. you can do that. Mm. And it'd be like uh, Championship Street Football going around the streets of uh, the UK. <laughs> That's quick. Cool. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do, do that. <laughs> Both bolts dug up. <laughs> um, sensitive uh, listeners should uh, cover their ears now because, you know, I've said before in these podcasts, I'm not a collector. I didn't keep my. No, you're not a collector, right? And I actually stuffed my copies of 2000 AD from this era into a Guy Fox. <laughs> so overseas listeners should know that Guy Fox is a, an effigy that we create once a year of a Catholic, which we burn uh, in the UK. Yes. Sounds quite well, bad. It's not just a Catholic, is it? He was a Catholic who tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, yeah. to, be, to be clear. It's yeah. not just any old Catholic. That, that would... Yeah, it would be monstrous, wouldn't it? I mean, well, yeah. well, it'd be monstrous that once a year that we stuffed our dad's uh, decorating clothes uh, with yes. old comics and uh, newspapers yeah. and set fire to them. It's a questionable tradition, isn't it? Yeah. Burning the effigy of a Catholic. But what is more questionable is burning all your 2000 ADs. It's more, that is far more questionable, actually, isn't it? And that's disturbing people who are listening right now more. <laughs> This, yeah. that you've done that yeah. <laughs> but, then, but then again it, it, that's the thing isn't it you didn't see it then in the way you see it now now you see it from a kind of nostalgic position but it wasn't nostalgic then because it was in the moment they were just comics they yeah. were just comics weren't they that they were disposable you know I mean I I, um, I 
got 2000 AD for a good few years and I don't remember where mine went so I don't no. think I even collected them I imagine that my mum probably threw them out every week and said oh have you finished with this and go yeah I've read it and, that, yeah. and it would go what we can learn um, the game is from 2000 AD I think is that idea of pulling together ideas that are popular current affairs like Nemesis the Warlock so you get the apartheid and you bring in High Plains Drifter, what happens? Yeah, that's what you get. It's Nemesis yeah. of the Warlock, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That scene. Yeah. So what two what two current affairs and popular things would you bring together to create a story? Put me on the spot. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Well I think I, I think uh, Mega City One being run by a belly wheeled blonde-haired madman and the judges feeling compromised by his rule. What about um, AI? So there's AI to Alexa. My kids have had an Alexa. Have you seen yeah, those? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the Alexas are popular and AI is popular. Mm. What would you bring together with that? What's popular in the, in the media? Paddington. Paddington. Paddington meets. An AI. <laughs> AI bear. AI bear. Is that, is that your idea of a story, 2018? No, for a We're better off with the Uncle Joe's mint ball fog. Paddington AI. Artificial intelligence bear. Yeah. What, like a bear that wanders around? Is it post-apocalyptic? If in doubt, make it post-apocalyptic. That always works. Paddington. Paddington, play some mood music. That's why. That, that's the that's the story, is it? <laughs> it's it needs a bit of work. It needs some work. It needs a bit of work on it. Yeah, it needs a bit of work. A rogue trooper was like that. In a sense, rogue trooper had uh, artificial intelligence, little chips, didn't he? With his it dead did. comrade stuck to his one on his helmet and one on his gun, and was the one on his I don't know, his backpack, wasn't there or something? They were like his dead, uh, dead comrades. Chips, the chips yeah. from them, weren't they? they helmet. Were like, um, yeah, helmet. Bo- help me not get shot. <laughs> help me hide from that sniper. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Blady. See you next time. See ya. There isn't another bit. I know, I know. Blythe's idea is rubbish. It's been done. The judges didn't get where they are today without overthrowing President Robert L. Booth and getting rid of democracy. I didn't have the heart to tell him. Whereas my idea of a bear with artificial intelligence, well, it has legs. Raddington, the only bear on the MFI death list. Play is the thing, and we have plenty of games to look forward to. I mentioned Spaghetti Conjunction on the 10th of February, where I'll be running Judge Dread, but we've also hit another Patreon goal. In April, we'll be running an online virtual grog meet for patrons, hosted by some of the grog meet games masters. More details will follow. The podcast will always be free, but the tips dropped into the beret every month by the Squawks Deck Groggo encourage us to continue. They cover the costs and help us to develop other projects. If you join now, the PDF of the two grogzines and the two volumes of The Complete Daily Dwarf are available to you. You'll also have chance to communicate 
with other like-minded players to start up your own online games. Thank you to those who joined in November and December of 2017, including Arjun Poutsma, Matthew Thompson, Kevin Mantle and Angus at the $1 level. Thank you very much for your support. At the $3.5 level, we have Adam Alexander, Martin Cookson, Howard Bishop and Keith Nelson, as well as the Esoteric Order of Role Players, who are an actual play podcast. RuneQuest fans should seek out the Gringles Pawn Shop programme. Thanks to you all. For those patrons who contribute $5 a month, we like to roll on a table and generate a virtual gift from the subject under discussion. This time, they're getting a spell in the ISO cubes for misdemeanours. First up on the perp list is... Kiha, formerly of Dissecting Worlds, a podcast that retired in November of 2017. Well, the devil makes work and all that. He's on the charge sheet for... Cheeking a judge. Six months for him. Stephen Ray. Well, he's been... Found in possession of Stooky Pills. One year without pills. Thomas Powell. He's been found... Illegal Beoinging. Are in a circle. 20 years for you, creep. Floritz Grabunday for all of your support. Next time, Mark Gascoigne returns to tell more tales of his adventures in gaming and publishing. And Daily Dwarf enthuses over 2000 AD and Judge Blythe turns his rules lawyer gaze over the rules for Judge Dredd. Until then, Splundig ver Thrig, amigos! <laughs>